Welcome. You've joined the Sexy Lifestyle with Carol and David. Our show is here to help you achieve better, better love, better sex, and a better, more intimate relationship. Are you ready? Take notes and send us your questions. This is the Sexy Lifestyle. Now, here are your hosts, Carol and David. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sexy Lifestyle Podcast. We are Stephanie and Fox from Evolve Your Intimacy, sitting in for Carol and David. We are a sexual health education and guidance center where you learn to educate, enlighten, and evolve your intimacy. Are you ready to spice up your sex life? Well, you've come to the right place because that is what the sexy lifestyle is all about. We are passionate about making your sex life the best it can be by discussing everything about relationships, sexual health, sex, intimacy, and pleasure. We love discussing the naughty, the taboo, and the unknown with our top experts in the industry and hope that our conversations will open up your dialogue for great sex. Because great sex matters, and we all deserve it. Hey guys, thank you for tuning in. Today, our guest for the show literally wrote the book on kink, and we are going to be discussing and identifying what BDSM looks like compared to sexual assault. This individual is an award-winning author, an expert in working with gender, relationships, and sexuality differences. She's a certified sex therapist, a personal friend of mine, Dr. Stephanie. But first, let's hear a word from our sponsor. Let's take a moment to talk about the top waterproof blanket, because great sex is messy sex, but no one wants to sleep in that wet spot. If you're fed up with having to change your sheets every time you have sex, then you need your own top waterproof blanket. It's 100% waterproof and leak-proof, and it guarantees to keep your bed and mattress dry, no matter how wet it gets. From messy massage oils or silicone lubes to all sorts of sexy wetness, just throw it in the washer and dryer and it comes out looking like brand new. You don't have to leave your house to get one. Simply and safely go to Amazon and order yours today. Search Top Waterproof Blanket. That is T-O-P Waterproof Blanket. Great sex starts now. Welcome to our show. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to have you. We have tried so hard to get you on, but we've our schedules have just not matched. We are both so busy. I'm glad we were able to connect. Yes, yes. And you just came back from a wonderful holiday in Israel. Yes. Yes, nice and refreshing. I'm, I hope you were able to take uh, some small breaks. It was wonderful. Wonderful. Awesome. So I want to kind of just jump right in because I think you're amazing. So I would like for you, tell us about your background in working with domestic violence and sexual assault survivors. Yeah. So before I um, did my sex therapy training, my the bulk of my career was actually working in domestic violence and sexual assault. Uh, even before I went to college, one of my earliest sort of professional jobs was working as a first response advocate for sexual assault survivors. So that meant that my job was to be present with them in the first 48 hours after their sexual assault. I worked with adults. I worked with child survivors. And then as um, my education, you know, sort of expanded as I went through my bachelor's and my my graduate school programming, my work expanded as well. So I've been a domestic violence therapist, a first response advocate. I ran a, a crisis line and drop-in center in, in Detroit for high-risk women and girls, which 
in that area means a lot of commercial sex workers, a lot of human trafficking survivors, a lot of survival sex, um, and, you know, a lot of domestic violence and sexual assault survivors. So most of how I came actually to being a sex therapist was because I had spent 15 years working with people who had had their bodies and sexuality weaponized against them. And it's incredibly powerful and incredibly important work, but I wanted to step away from that side of things and kind of flip the coin and work on the other side of human sexuality to help people have stronger, happier, healthier relationships, you know, with their bodies, with their partners, with themselves. So I left my work as a domestic violence therapist. I did my postgraduate studies in sex therapy at the University of Michigan. And then I started my my private practice and I've been doing exclusively sex therapy ever since. Sex therapy is one of my favorites, if I have to say so myself. It's uh, definitely definitely a much-needed practice in our world today. So um, when you were working with the sexual assault survivors, is there any particular case that you took home? You know, I mean, I don't want details, but just that one that you took home and it just hurt your heart and you still carry it today? You know, it's really funny because one of my best friends, actually, she's the one that that told me that doing first response advocacy was a job because she was a court advocate. We were both in our early 20s and she looked at me about six months into my work as an advocate. And she said, you know, I really worry about you because, you know, you don't seem to carry this with you. It doesn't seem to bother you. And, you know, I, I'm not really sure that you're you're cut out for this kind of work. It doesn't seem to phase you. And I said, thank you. You know, I'll, I'll pay attention to that. I'll be mindful. And fast forward another year or two. And I looked at her and I said, you know, I really worry about you. I'm not entirely sure that you're you're cut out for this work. You don't seem to be able to leave it at the door. You, you carry these cases with you in a way that really makes me worry for you. <laughs> And fast forward 20 years from those conversations, and um, I'm now in private practice, still working with a lot of sexual trauma cases, and she actually left the field and, and went into nursing. So in some ways, I think the fact that there aren't a lot of cases that I carry with me is a sign of resiliency and an important element of being able to do the work that I did for so long. The one, though, that um, I, I can't say I carry with me, but the one that sticks out in my mind was actually a pediatric case. And the reason why it stays with me is because um, it was a, a family member was the assailant and it happened on Easter Sunday. And she was very, very proud of her Easter dress. And we had to take the Easter dress for evidence. And so that piece left the assault. I mean, it wasn't so much the circumstances of the case, but having a conversation with this little girl about something that was so important to her <laughs> that seems so trivial as a grown up, right? It's just like, it's just a piece of clothing. What's the big deal? But she was so proud of her pretty dress and knowing that we were having to take that away from her was really, really hard. And so of all of the cases that I've done over the years, I still think about having to be the mean grown-up that that took this little girl's Easter dress. Oh, man. Yeah, that definitely would be hard, especially 
since that was something that was important to her and she didn't understand exactly what had been taken from her at that time. So I can tell, well, that that was definitely a hard one. So Fox is going to be joining us in just a few minutes. But Fox, he worked with he's a savvy instructor. I'm supposed to know all of these acronyms, but it's very hard. It's okay. I'm fixing some on the website. So I used to work for Homeland Security, specifically with um, human trafficking uh, and drug interdiction, because money is drugs, and drugs means human trafficking, which means anti-terrorism, uh, force protection issues as well. So as soon as I'm done, I'm going to jump in on this, because I have roughly about 30-something cases, probably very prevalent and relevant to your field of work um, that I would love to discuss with you. Love it. So how did you end up in the kink side of things? So, um, you know, Stephanie, I know you know, because you've been through sex therapy training, but, but for those who don't know, a part of the process of training to be a sex therapist is going through a process called a SAR, a sexual attitudes reassessment. And it's a very intensive multi-day process where we're exposed to a lot of different sexual content, sexual scenarios, sexual media. And it's really intended to get us to reflect about what we're comfortable with, what makes us uncomfortable, where our biases are, um, and to do a lot of introspective work. And when I did my SAR, the group that I did it with, we watched videos of a gentleman with um, a, a quadriple quadriplegic gentleman who was working with a sex worker to have a happy, fulfilling sex life with his disabilities. And everybody thought that was so empowering and so amazing and so creative. And we saw videos of a couple in their 90s and the way that they maintained physical closeness and intimacy, even though they couldn't, you know, have penetrative sex anymore. And everybody thought that was so romantic and beautiful. And they hoped that, you know, their marriages were like that when they were old. And there were all of these really positive reactions. And then we had the 90 minutes-ish on kink that, that we had out of those three or four days. And the attitude in the room changed. And the energy shifted and things got very giggly and things got um, very jokey and people were making comments and I didn't like that. I mean, my, my background is in social work. I've always been first and foremost an advocate. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the idea that a group of people who, you know, ostensibly self-selected into this field because we want to empower people to be safer and happier in their sexuality are having a reaction like that to a group of people who are just doing what every other group we had been seeing were doing, which is being happy and connected to their partners was really upsetting to me. And so I, I really decided it just in the earliest days of my sex therapy training that this was going to be my my mission, that I was going to work with the other members of my field, with my colleagues, to make sure that none of our clients ever experienced a reaction like I saw that day in my SAR. And so I wrote my first book, I wrote my second book, I've done tons of conferences and training and public speaking, and it's really become a passion of mine 
to advocate for members of the kink community to members of the mental health community to make sure that they never ever experience the the kinds of ladies are you ready to take your intimacy to the next level head over to our website to find out about relationship intimacy and sex counseling and gentlemen are you needing a little bit more join us at stephanieandfox.com to learn tips on how to communicate with that special someone and ignite that flame. Now, let's get back to the show. Um, unfair and unkind reactions that I saw that day. Yes, the SAR was one of my favorite things. There were a few elements of the SAR that kind of got me, but kink, of course, was one of my favorites. And the book that you're referring to is your first book, The Leather Couch, A Clinical Practice with Kinky Clients. And that is... Number one, I reference this book all the time, but it's a guide for clinicians. And I think it, well, you, you won awards for this book. I did. Which, and I mean, I, I know what they are, but tell me what awards you won. Uh, so it was named uh, ASECT, which is the American Association for Sexuality Educators, Counselors, and Therapists. That's the group that, that credentials sex therapists and educators and counselors, uh, named it the, the book of the year for 2020. And then STAR, the Society for Sex Therapy and Research, um, just announced that um, it is their 2022 professional book of the year. Stop it. I am so proud of you. It is Thanks. definitely one of the best books when it comes to understanding the way you have it laid out and the way I can hear your voice through it. And it's not convoluted with just therapy words like you're you talk to us the reader like we're human and I love that I write the way I talk and I talk the way I write for good or for ill that's just how I am same I gotcha so I want to ask are there differences in what abuse looks like within the kink dynamic versus a vanilla relationship vanilla meaning someone who's not into kink so there are some commonalities, some things that we find in both, right? When we have um, one partner who's limiting communication with um, the other person's friends or family, they're, they're, you know, putting restrictions on who they can talk to, who they can interact with. When they're um, supervising their communication, listening in on phone calls, screening texts, emails, that sort of thing. Um, gaslighting is huge across the board in any abusive relationship, um, destroying property, threatening to harm children or pets. These are all things that, that I've seen both in kinky and non-kinky abusive dynamics. But within power exchange relationships, you know, themselves, there are some things that um, stand out as indicators of abuse, such as um, denying basic needs. Often I will see an abusive partner withholding food or water or rest from the abused partner and they use the guise of power play or the guise of punishment. But um, that's that's fundamentally unsafe and food and water are things that should never be used as, as kinky player as punishment. Um, using deliberately unsafe play or play that has, that goes beyond what the partner is comfortable doing to instill fear, right? Like fear and fear play can be a really fun part of kink, 
when it's negotiated and when it's understood. But when they are provoking non-negotiated fear, when they're doing things that are genuinely unsafe, as opposed to the illusion of unsafe that, that so much of kink is predicated on, that can be a warning sign of abuse. Um, a big one that I have seen a lot when the abuser is actually the more submissive partner, which is something we don't think about a lot, right? <laughs> it, it is blurred boundaries or scene confusion. I had um, one couple that I worked with where actually the abusive partner was the submissive. And it, they would show up at their dominance workplace and want to... Um, kneel beside their dominance desk at work and it was a very intentional way to threaten outing it was a very intentional way of controlling that person and threatening that person by putting them in a position where they could lose their job so there are subtle things that can happen within a power dynamic that are abusive um failing to get injured or failing to treat injuries that happen or using um power exchange punishments to address non-kink related issues if if i'm whipping somebody because i'm mad at them for issues related to our relationship and not related to a rule violation or an a, a contract agreement that's a problem and then a huge one that i see of course and this kind of ties into to the um desk scenario i just mentioned is threatening to out people the the power that we have in a power exchange relationship to out somebody to um, harm their, and unfortunately there is still a lot of kink stigma. So to harm their relationships with their children, their relationships with their families, to put their jobs in jeopardy by outing them as kinky, particularly again, when it's the more submissive person that's threatening this status and dominance, um, face a lot of stigma for enjoying what they enjoy. So threatening to out somebody as a dominant or as a sadist can be an incredibly effective way to control their behavior and to get what you want from them. So those are some of the things that are unique within kink and power exchange that can definitely be red flags of abuse. Wow. <clears throat> yes, that is definitely definitely something to think about. So for the for a person, let's say they are exploring and they go to an event and there is some light BDSM play, how can a, an average person tell the difference between that person's being abused or that person is being or receiving what they want? But before you answer that question, Doc, we need to take a quick commercial break. We are Stephanie and Fox from Evolve Your Intimacy, sitting in for Carol and David of The Sexy Lifestyle. We'll be right back. So if you're looking for the sexiest and most erotic vacation ever, then you simply must book with Topless Travel. From hedonism to in Jamaica and desire in Cancun to all the Bliss Cruise experiences, Topless Travel needs to be your number one choice. Yeah, their trips and events are all about the people and, of course, their sexy, fun experiences. Ah, let's just shout out to all those sexy host couples, including Chelsea and Mark, who are there to ensure that you have one hell of a good sexy vacation. Absolutely. And you'll find us on many of the Topless Travel trips, but listen up. The one that we are really looking forward to is their sexy silver full 
Takeover at Desire Pearl from October 16th to 23rd, 2022. We're going to be there broadcasting live and rooms are selling out quickly. So go online and book now. Come and join us for a week. We'd love to meet you. And for more information about this trip or any of their other events, go to thesexylifestyle.com and click on the topless travel event link to book the sexiest and most erotic vacation ever. Welcome back. We are Stephanie and Fox from Evolve Your Intimacy, sitting in for Carol and David from The Sexy Lifestyle. And we're having a great conversation with Dr. Stephanie Gorlich about when BDSM goes wrong. So if we're talking about an event, this is really one of the tricky things that I don't know that our community has really figured out because there's not an effective way. We have a great system at many events to indicate whether or not somebody wants to be approached. I've seen um, name tags that are color coded or wristbands that are, you know, red, I'm just watching, green, I want to play, all sorts of different systems that indicate sort of that initial contact willingness. But once the scene starts, there aren't a lot of great mechanisms that I've seen to make sure that consent is ongoing and affirmative consent. The community as a whole kind of frowns on people disrupting one another's scenes. Mm -hmm. So even if we see something that looks particularly rough, if we see somebody crying perhaps really hard or if we see some punching or some kicking happening there's there's this certain element of don't yuck their yum or their kinks not my kink but their kinks okay and you know we tend to minimize that as oh well they're into rough body play and that's just not my thing or that makes me uncomfortable but who am i to say that that's not okay for them and so there's not a great mechanism really for us to know when something has gone sideways one of the things that I'm a big proponent of and I would like to see more of mm -hmm. is the use of tap lights at events in public spaces. Those are those little plastic lights that you just push and they turn on, push and they turn off. Oh, I love that idea. Personally, I think every public or private event, if you're having public play, the organizers should give out tap lights because A, they're easily because they're plastic, but they can be turned on or off with pretty much any body part. And it's a really easy way to signal to the event organizers, the dungeon monitors, that you want to be approached, that you want a scene to be stopped by somebody other than the people involved in the scene. And I think that could be a really easy way to minimize organizer risk and also kind of provide a consent-based way to know when something's gotten gone awry because right now we really don't have a way to know when something we're watching is no longer consensual i love the click lights i i think that that should be incorporated in almost all play in, in all styles of play if you're going to have sexual play regardless if it's a heavy scene or just playing with your partner i feel like those would be a good tool so um I think our website is fixed and I would like to go ahead and bring Fox in to the conversation. Fox? Yes, it's all fixed. <laughs> um, but I have been eavesdropping in on the conversation. Um, so just to give you some quick background on me. Um, so I've been in federal law enforcement uh, for a very long time, worked with Homeland Security, as I stated earlier, uh, specifically with human trafficking and drug interdiction. 
um, because with those things come the money. With the money comes terrorism. Uh, and that was kind of my focus, but it was all about finding the money. So uh, I have 30-something cases under my belt with human trafficking, and a lot of that surrounds your previous work. And also in Stephanie and I's sexual dynamic, um, I am the dominant, and we do get into power exchange play, not all the time. Um, we don't live the subdom life whatsoever, but we do uh, get into a lot of power play and subdom in the bedroom, but only in the bedroom. Um, and then a little bit also, I was a sexual assault victim intervention specialist, which is now called a sapper. Uh, savvy no longer exists, uh, to my understanding, and now it's sapper um, when I was in the military. So I do have a lot of hands-on experience with a lot of this stuff. Um, and then recently, because of what we do now, I became a board-certified um, relationship, intimacy, and sex education coach. Um, so, yeah, it's a little bit about me so you understand when I interject. <laughs> Going back to what we were talking about with people watching a scene and not knowing if it's actual abuse or if it's part of the scene, I love the click lights. So uh, my next follow-up question is, you know, what are some of the challenges that the kinky survivors experience when they do report their abuse, if they are being abused? As, as somebody that has sat in numerous police interviews, see, you asked me earlier, what stories do I carry with me? And it's actually very rarely the survivor, you know, the actual stories of assault. What I carry with me is more often the, the survivor police interactions. Um, I, used to pride myself on my willingness to very politely and very respectfully ask law enforcement to leave because some of the the experiences that my survivors had after their assault made things so much worse. I have had my survivors, um, more than one, be told, well, you know, if, if you don't tell us who did this to you, he's going to do it again and that will be on you. You know, the next girl that gets raped, it's really your fault. Um, I've had people told that um, if the, the standard, you know, if you had been in a different place, if you had made different choices, if you had um, been with somebody else, if you had been more responsible, if you had looked different, this wouldn't have happened, which particularly for our kinky survivors is huge. Because the risk assessment model and the way that the kink community kind of makes our risk choices and the way that law enforcement would like people to make their risk choices are very, very different. <laughs> so often for the kinky survivor, they will feel like by, by the community standards, they did everything right. When really by law enforcement standards, they just demonstrated a pattern of irresponsible behavior. Um, so that's a huge barrier. Um, and then another one is just the sexualization of kink in general and the assumption that kink is meant to be sexual as opposed to relational. I have a colleague who years and years ago was actually in a hospital with a survivor because this person was injured so badly they weren't cleared to leave and go to the forensic nursing site. They had to be seen and treated at the hospital. And the responding officer had taken her statement and was getting ready to leave. And he was about to walk out of the room. He had his hand on the door. 
And he turned and looked at her and he said, you know, you're, you're really cute. I can totally see why somebody would rape you. Can I get your number? What? You've got to, you've, you're, I know you're not joking, but that is just absolutely ridiculous. I mean, uh, I can't even. <laughs> and survivors <clears throat> is already perceived as sexualized or promiscuous or in some way when they are not seen as the the hyper modest sober pure virginal perfect victim it becomes so much easier for those comments to happen and when you're talking about a kinky survivor very rarely do they fit that perfect victim profile so the 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 process of of reporting and the scrutiny that they experience when they do choose to report can be as violating and as traumatizing as the assault itself. You know, this is why it's so, so important. And, and I'm going to curse here. It's so fucking important for law enforcement because I've, I've run into this myself with federal law enforcement where we're called in local PD is excused out of the room because they're not given the proper education you know, they're not given SAPR training, which for those of you that don't know what that is, it's sexual assault prevention and response. And they're not giving uh, CIS training, which is crisis intervention training or CIT. And these are all very good trainings on how to properly and with empathy, you know, I don't want to say deal because that's the incorrect word, but respond properly to someone that has been sexually assaulted. And so it doesn't surprise me that you've come across these situations and it just, it angers me and it makes me frankly sick because there needs to be more education, more empathy, and more just human interaction of, hey, okay, I have a job to do, yes, but you're a person and, I, and I'm going to treat you as such. I had a number of advocate colleagues who made it clear that they had made a personal decision that if they were ever to be sexually assaulted, they would not report it. Not because they wanted the person to get away with that crime, but because they had seen what the survivors went through um, with law enforcement and with the courts, and they were not willing to put themselves through that. So, Within the cases that you've worked with and you've seen and you've talked about some of the law enforcement reactions, not all, but some, how have the courts and juries responded to the practices such as BDSM and ethical or yeah, ethical non-monogamy in, you know, in your experience? So it's really important that people understand that even where kink and polyamory and things like that aren't involved the prosecution of a sexual assault is incredibly rare. And where it is prosecuted, jail time is even rarer. Um, I think the actual stats last time I looked were something like only about eight convicted rapists actually see any jail time. And it's, it's in the, the, the odds of a prosecution actually occurring successfully to in a way that, that the victim feels justice has been served is very minute. So with that said, once we add in an element of 
a kinky survivor or BDSM or non-monogamy being involved as an element of the scenario that led to the assault. A, prosecutors tend to use that as a, as a factor in deciding whether or not they feel like they can successfully prosecute this. It becomes a factor that they consider in terms of will a jury see this as a sexual assault if you had already consented to being tied up and beaten. And then let's say they say, okay, you did consent to that, but there's a really clear line where this became a sexual assault. Maybe the actual assailant was not the person that you consented to have tie you up and beat you, right? Maybe a, a different person came into the room. From there, um, as a victim advocate, I have found that the actual um, injury patterns can be very confusing to juries. When a victim, when a prosecutor has to explain that um, the courts and, and the nurses, the forensic examiners documented old bruises from a scene that might have happened a week ago at a different party with a different person that was super enjoyable for the survivor and is not connected to this incident at all. And then you have the scratches and contusions and maybe some flogging like um, marks that were part of the consensual part of this event. But then you have the um, bruising and the bite marks that were not consensual. All of that becomes very, very complicated. <laughs> the narrative gets lost. And for most juries, it's not gonna happen, right? Like they're not gonna take the time to parse out. If, you, if you're trying to tell me that if some of your bruises you liked and some of them you didn't, then why am I going to believe that you didn't like any of it? So the just the the activities associated with BDSM play and kink play and the marks that they leave on the bodies of survivors can make communicating the, the assault narrative to a jury incredibly difficult. <clears throat> There's also the fact that often a survivor will, will choose not to testify, choose not to participate in the prosecution because they know that if they testify, the defense attorney is going to eviscerate them in terms of bringing up their kink practices, bringing up their sexual behaviors, none of which should be relevant. But um, a strong defense is something that all people accused of a crime are entitled to and a part of a strong defense when you are defending somebody of a sexual crime is unpacking unfortunately the the other elements of the the survivors um social life so many many survivors are unwilling or unable to put themselves through that they they don't participate in the prosecution and then that often results in an unsuccessful part or prosecution. You know, I want to jump um, on something you said too, because yeah. <clears throat> so back in 2017, there was a, a federal law enforcement study and it showed that only 31% are actually prosecuted in that. So, so what those numbers look like is 310 out of a thousand were prop. And it says properly, that's the key word properly and systematically prosecuted. Now, I have a hypothesis or a theory that those numbers have gone down because with kink and BDSM and different styles of play within the kink community being more socialized 
and more accepted now, my hypothesis is that those numbers are going to go actually down because how, and you just nailed it, how does a jury or how does people that don't understand that lifestyle, how do they differentiate between, let's say, a contract between a sub and a dom where, you know, I can tell you that when I do sub dom contracts, I have a body printout and we have a, a paint range and it's a color range from green, yellow to red. And we initial and highlight and agree to each pain point, you know, depending on the body part, etc. So I get very detailed because of my background. And I'm also very sensitive. The minute I think I've gone overboard, I stop all play. We have a conversation. Um, you know, aftercare goes is an immediate thing for me. But my hypothesis is because it's become more socialized and accepted, it makes it harder for society than to judge, was this a sexual assault? Now, was it? Absolutely, because anything non-consenting is an assault, and that's according to federal law. This is some great information, but before we continue, let's take a quick break. We are Stephanie and Fox from Evolve Your Intimacy, sitting in for Carol and David from The Sexy Lifestyle. Ladies, are you ready to take your intimacy to the next level? Head over to EvolveYourIntimacy.com to learn more about intimacy, relationships, and sex counseling. And gentlemen, do you need a little bit more? Head over to our website to learn tips on how to communicate with that special someone and ignite that flame. If you enjoy our content and guests and would like to help us grow, go to our website, EvolveYourIntimacy.com to follow, like, subscribe, and comment on all of our social media accounts. Now, let's get back to the show. Welcome back. We are Stephanie and Fox from Evolve Your Intimacy, sitting in for Carol and David from The Sexy Lifestyle, talking to Dr. Gorlich about BDSM going wrong. But... It's, it's unfortunate that these numbers, A, are so low, and it's more unfortunate, and again, this is just my hypothesis, that these numbers are going to dwindle because of the social acceptance of this type of play in the first place. And the fact that those 310 are prosecuted does not mean that th- those 310 ever see a day in, in jail. Right. The vast majority of them will get probation. So, again, if you are legitimately fearful of the person that assaulted you, what incentive is there to agitate further by putting yourself through a trial by, I mean, it's a system that is unfortunately stacked against the survivor. And then to to your point about normalization, um, one factor that people fail to consider, um, Charles Moser and his co-author, whose name eludes me at this moment, did um, a, a study and published a journal article looking at um, what happens when somebody's kink identity is brought up in family court. So admittedly, this is not criminal, but when somebody's kink identity is brought up in court, what happens? And they found that regardless of context, regardless of whether there was any allegation of abuse or of impropriety, if the the person's kink practice, kink identity was mentioned at all, that always 100% had a negative impact on their um, custody arrangement with their children. They lost visitation time, they lost custody, they lost, it, it always impacted the, the decision making of the court. So 
most sexual assault survivors are women, not all, but a, a, a majority. If you have somebody who's parenting, who is a sexual assault survivor, who is worried about her kink lifestyle, her non-monogamous lifestyle, any element of this coming out in court as a part of her testimony as a sexual assault survivor, if she's concerned that her co-parent could take this back to family court and use that to change their custody agreement, the record shows that that would probably be effective. So once again, that's going to be something that would be weaponized against her, and it it's, makes her less likely to want to participate in seeking justice for her own assault. It, it's just another way in which the stigma keeps rapists in the community. Mm. Speaking of the community, how how is the community protecting itself and protecting these people from abuse? And what does the compute? I guess the community think about all this and. What can they do? I don't know that we do a, a super effective job. I think that, you know, like I mentioned before, mantras like your king stop my king, but that's okay, um, can be used in ways that rationalize things that maybe we need to be having more conversations about. <laughs> um, I have personally heard a lot of victim blaming from people in the community. I've heard, oh, well, they agreed to it. They knew what they were getting into. Um, they understood that um, this was going to be what was going to happen when they got there. Um, why didn't they just use the safe word? Well, I mean, safe words aren't always respected, for yeah. one. <laughs> um, oh, well, the submissive is really the one with all the power, right? Yeah. I've heard so many things that are used to make the people hearing uncomfortable stories feel more comfortable themselves instead of addressing truly problematic behavior in the community. There was, and I'm not going to name names, but there was at least one person very prominent on FetLife who was a known and notorious rapist for years and years that everybody knew about, talked about, loved and adored and simply said, oh, well, that's their thing. And any woman that meets up with him kind of knows what she's walking into. He's very open about it. And it wasn't until he was finally prosecuted that the community finally said, oh, well, we knew the whole time. He was a very bad man. We knew. So I don't know that we do a good job. Um, a lot of releases that events sign, and I give an example of this in my book, kind of put the onus on the submissive partner or the bottoming partner, which isn't necessarily logical in a scenario where they are restrained or gagged or otherwise not able to just get up and walk away. Right. <laughs> I think we need to have much more empowerment of dungeon monitors. I think we need to have ways like the, the tap lights to signal when something has somebody needs intervention. I think we need to have more D-type monitoring. I think we need to have more like S-type peer groups so that especially new people in the community can come together and have somebody say, oh, honey, that's not normal and that's not safe. And, you know, we need to have systems that are comfortable talking about the way that power exchange and kink can be used to harm. But there's been so much stigma around BDSM and kink for so long 
that I think that people don't want to have these conversations because it feels as if we're perpetuating our own stigma, when really what we need to do is hold each other accountable and keep each other safe because that's how we reduce stigma. We need to take a quick commercial break. We are Stephanie and Fox from Evolve Your Intimacy, sitting in for Carol and David of The Sexy Lifestyle. We'll be right back. So are you interested in vaginal rejuvenation and sexual health? It's a topic that we want to talk about more because how we look and how we feel make a huge difference in the way we live sexy. The company Lumisk has developed an easy treatment system for vaginal rejuvenation. It's a product that you can use on yourself and at home. It's a carboxy gel called CO2 Lift V. You simply mix together two packets of gel and apply it to your vulva and inside your vagina before bedtime and then rinse it out in the morning. The gel infuses CO2 into the skin to encourage blood flow. It promotes healing and cell regeneration. And the great thing is that there's no discomfort or downtime. This CO2 Lift V treatment keeps your vaginal tissue healthy and happy. It increases lubrication and sensation and makes sex more fun at any age. After you finish the initial course of weekly treatments, you can easily maintain your results with applications once a month. Also, it's a sure way to snap back after a long night of great sex. For more information, visit CO2Lift.com, buy yours today, and get a 15% discount if you use promo code SEXYLIFE at checkout. That's S-E-X-Y-L-I-F-E. Great sex starts now. And remember, if you're looking for an online open-minded community to meet compatible people in your area, you should go to SDC.com and use promo code 30314 for your first month free. So check it out. Now, let's get back to the show. So you had mentioned that you had some cases that you wanted to talk to Dr. Stephanie. I love saying that. It rolls off the tongue about. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so I want to be very careful in some of the information I provide because some of the cases are still open. So I, I want to mention one in particular that I believe is now closed. As a matter of fact, no, I do know it's closed because I just got the uh, correspondence for it a couple months back. So one of the jobs, um, I was a, a UIC officer, so I did um, some undercover work for certain groups. Um, and there was a 13-year-old girl who we... For all intents and purposes, I'm going to use different terms. That way I don't allow certain information to be divulged. Uh, for all, so for all intents and purposes, we rescued this young lady um, near the border in Texas uh, at an undisclosed location. And her perpetrators, her assaultants had done such a, and I'm going to use this word very lightly, so they had they had done such a detailed job of gaslighting her that she truly believed at that point that it was love. It was care. It was this positive type response to her body, the way she looked. And they had done such a detailed job that she believed that that was part of her, her identity, her shine, her light. And it was just very shocking um, to all of us and all of our training, none of it worked on her because of 
her response to this. So I guess my question is, what say you to that? And how could individuals that come across that again, what are some steps they can take? Because I know that in local law enforcement, they immediately call a mental health professional. But in federal law enforcement, that's what they have us for. But, and even though I've had all this training, these are 80-hour courses. I get them once a year with a couple CUs. The CUs are 6 to 12 hours long. And unless we constantly see cases like that, you know, we're not skilled enough to handle this like, you know, like you two are. My heart breaks when I hear stories like that. And I think the most important thing that that I can say is to understand that the undoing of a situation like that takes almost as long as the making of a situation like that. I think that so many people think that if we can create a situation of safety and support for a young person who's been abused and and brainwashed in a lot of ways, or at the very least profoundly manipulated, that they will see the light and they will recognize what the truth is. And that's not the case. Even somebody who has been profoundly abused often loves their abuser. And the longer that that was their reality, the the longer or the harder it's going to be to teach them an alternate worldview. So it can be, and I've done this work with young people, it can be incredibly disheartening to meet all of the needs that we think that should be met. You're no longer being forced into sex work. You have all the food that you need. You have adequate clothing. You have supportive people around you. You have opportunities for education. You have toys and entertainment, like everything you could possibly want as a young person you have now. So why do you want to go back to that? And we're not going to understand it. We just have to meet them where they are, work with the reality that they're bringing to us, and give them a lot of time because it's going to take a lot of time for them to unlearn what they've spent years and years learning. There is no easy fix. Mm, That is so true. There is no easy fix. I want to flip this just for a minute. How can sexual assault survivors use kink to heal? So there is some research being done on the the therapeutic benefits of kink. Some of it I support, some of it I struggle with. Um, And I don't think we're at a point where we can say that kink itself is an evidence-based practice. We're not there yet. But I think that for some people... Um, particularly people who are already kind of kink identified, the people who were already sort of innately kinky mm-hmm. find kink very healthy and very healing. I think that for many uh, trauma survivors, it can work a lot like exposure therapy, where it lets them gradually, safely, and in a very um, self-controlled way, expose themselves to things that they... Um, find fearful or triggering and to do that at a pace that they feel is safe and comfortable. I think that it lets them take back a sense of control and autonomy over their bodies and their decision-making process that can be really helpful and cathartic. 
Um, and I've been thinking and reading a lot recently around sort of um, non-sexual trauma, things like racial trauma and ways in which aspects of our identities have been weaponized against us and how um, role play and BDSM and kink are being used by marginalized communities to kind of reclaim those aspects of their identities and to recontextualize those hurtful moments in, in the, the non-kink world and to let them reclaim that part of themselves that might have been marginalized or fetishized in other ways. So I think that for kinky people, kink can be very healing. Um, I don't prescribe kink to people that aren't already interested in it. You know, when I have people that are very happily vanilla, I don't tell them to tie each other up necessarily. <laughs> but for people that say this is a part of who I am and this is a part of what I enjoy, then I absolutely weave that into our um, um, treatment processes and the ways in which we move towards their goals. Absolutely. I know, and I'm very forward about my sexual abuse, but I know that being able to role play has allowed me to take back some of my power and allowed me to to really understand who I am. I have higher self-confidence. I mean, just it was it was very powerful for me to be able to use some kinky elements to help me heal and become more sexual in a positive way. So absolutely. I think that this can be very, very impactful work. I think that the key is that it has to be self-directed. It has to be something that comes from the person that then the clinician and the partner kind of expand and latch onto and help support in their exploration. I don't know that any outsider can say, if you do this, you will find it healing. But when it comes organically from the individual, it can be amazing. Mm. Yes, it can be. Any, what are some of your, your best practices and your best suggestions for someone who, for our listeners that are listening to this and they're thinking, okay, well, I might want to try to be a little kinky and try something beginner level. What are some of the beginner level things that you often talk about with people and, and get them to try first? Usually I start with asking what they are most interested in. BDSM is not just one thing. So we talk about the differences between exchanging control. So limiting movement, limiting speech, right? Or exchanging authority, giving up decision-making authority, or asking somebody to let you be the one that makes decisions for them. Or sensation. I want to um, experience really intense sensation. And so I help them really refine what are they most curious about. And then from there, we, we explore what can exist within that realm. So if somebody's really curious about um, giving up control, we might talk about um, wrapping up really tightly in bed sheets so that they feel kind of mummified and restrained, but also very swaddled, which can feel um, neurologically very safe and comforting while also giving you that sort of kinky element of restraint and lack of mobility. If somebody is curious about sensation play, I usually encourage them to start with things like ice, 
because ice, um, everybody has it, but it's something that you can actually vary sensation with. If you hold ice in one spot for a long time, it starts to feel like a burn, but if you move it around lightly, it's more of a tickle. So there are things that you can do that aren't intimidating, that don't require a lot of elaborate sort of planning that can give you opportunities to explore elements of what you're curious about and then expand outward from there. I, I love that. I like also talking to clients about um, the sex wax. Do not pick up a candle and just pour it on your partner. Please purchase the ones that are made for this. But experimenting with the sex wax candles, people, not hot wax, and allowing them and, and, and seeing what they think about that and, and adding that to their sensation play along with the ice, too. So as we're talking, you know, to shed some light on some further stuff, I had to pull up a federal study real quick because I forgot the numbers and, and I don't like to misrepresent numbers. So are you familiar with RAIN, the organization? Yeah. Okay. So RAIN right now, they have a new uh, a federal liaison. And up in Capitol Hill, as of this year, there was a new bill that was introduced um, for the Project Safe Childhood Modernization Act. And what that is, is it's, if it is passed, which I 100% hope it's passed, it's going to require every federal agent within um, certain realms of sexual assault and human trafficking to become sapper, to do the CEUs, but also it's going to... Um, emanate 20 federal prosecutors to go through the same training so that's a very positive thing to see and also they're trying to introduce the child rescue act which is going to create the u.s commission on child in imminent danger department um, that one hasn't reached the hill yet but it isn't a bill that is going to be introduced next year and uh, i just pulled up the newest federal study for sexual assault and so that that number, that 310 that we talked about earlier, only only 25 of those 310 are actually prosecuted and put in federal prison. Yeah. On top of that, the new numbers are out where it, and again, this is a federal study. It says that one in six women are sexually assaulted, where one out of 11 men are sexually assaulted. Uh, and that, you know, there's a, a bunch of other studies with, men being sexually assaulted because a lot of things aren't properly uh, reported because of pride or ego or what have you. But I'm happy to say that that number changed from last year because it was one in five women and one in nine men. So it does seem to be doing a little bit. I, I'm curious as to if there's also an effect on that because kink and BDSM have been mainstreamed. mainstreamed and so those individuals are able to get their I don't want to sensationalize anyone that is having uh, thoughts or characteristical thoughts of sexual assault but I almost feel that with BDSM and kink being more modernized that it allows a release that is more healthy uh, you know similar to porn ethical porn that's designed where you can stay safe in your own fantasy, but never act it out physically and hurt anybody else. 
So in my next book, I have a small section on the different types of sadism. And we don't often think about degrees of sadism. We tend to think about two types. There's the criminal kind, and then there's the sexy kind. And, <laughs> and there's actually several kinds. And, and there is a group of, of sadists who we, we could say are, are sublimating what they might otherwise act out in unhealthy ways through healthy things like aggressive sports or, um, you know, really cutthroat business practices or even BDSM. And then there's also um, what we might call pro-social sadists who engage in behaviors that perhaps have um, feel negative for the people on the receiving end, but that carry positive benefits. So a lot of people um, who are sadists might go into medicine um, because they enjoy hurting people, but they're doing it in a way that is for the, the, the well-being of the person being hurt. And we're also noticing that perhaps some sadistic kinky people are using kink in the same way, where they're, they're taking their sadistic urges and they're channeling that, um, for the benefit of their partner and for the benefit of their relationship. So I think you might be onto something there. Look at you, little researcher, and you didn't even. I'm smart sometimes. Stop it, <laughs> my little researcher. Well, Stephanie, as we start to wrap up, what's next for you? I just submitted the manuscript for my sequel to The Leather Couch, so that will come out in 2022. And that also has a, a lengthy title. Rutledge does like its its um just as described on the box title. So this one is called Kink Affirming Practice, Culturally Competent Therapy from the Leather Chair. Ah. And that should come out late summer, early fall next year. And then in 2023, I have my first um, mass market. So not for clinical readers, but just for everyday readers book that will come out. And that one is tentatively titled with sprinkles on top, Help and Hope for Vanilla Partners of Kinky People. So those are the next two projects in the works for me. And if someone wants to reach out to you, how can they find you? Um, My website is boundtogethercounseling.com. And all of my social medias, my Twitter, my email, um, my text, all of that is available through my website. Wonderful. Well, I really enjoy having you and learning from you as well as just being in your presence. I'm just in awe struck of you. So many with everything that you've done, you kind of are, I'm fangirling right now, but you know, what can I say? So I'm so glad to call you friend. I know. I love it. I can't wait to actually meet you in person because we've always seen each other through Zoom, but you know, we'll get there one day, one day. Well, I, again, thank you. No, I just appreciate your expertise and your thoroughness. Um, I haven't got a chance to read, read your book, but Stephanie has given me a lot of bullet points. And this type of work needs to be done more. And it needs to be researched more and publicized more. And so just thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to our show. And remember, you are not in this alone. And we are here to help. You can check us out at stephanieandfox.com and subscribe to all of our social media accounts to get free resources about evolving your intimacy. Have a good night. Have a good one.
All right, friends, tune in again next time for another hour of The Sexy Lifestyle, talking about sex, sexuality, sexual health, and, of course, pleasure. Oh, and all the fun ways that you can spice up your sex life. Well, that's it for our show today. On behalf of Carol and David, we are Stephanie and Fox from Evolve Your Intimacy, sending you lots of love and great sex. Please stay safe, and, of course, stay sexy, everyone. Until next time. Thank you for joining Carol and David for this week's edition of The Sexy Lifestyle. We've got another one lined up next Friday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The weekend is just around the corner, so try something new, spice it up, and you just might have the best sex ever.